uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there in cyberspace. You know, our intro music has clips from various movies. The first is from War Games, a 1983, a 1983 film where a hacker squares off against an artificial intelligence that's in control of nukes. Almost 40 years later, an AI is beating people at StarCraft II, which is not quite uh, the organization of a nuclear war, but can still feel pretty scary to some. But how smart are these systems really? Is AI the next big thing, or just another in a series of promises about the future that hasn't quite materialized? And are there drawbacks here? What are the actual dangers of these systems? Well, here to help us answer this question is Oz Keyes. Keyes is a PhD student at the University of Washington's Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering and an occasional motherboard contributor. Their area of expertise is, broadly, how technology constructs the world we live in. I'm Matthew Gall, and this is Cyber. Oz, thank you so much for coming onto the show and uh, walking us through this today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have to confess, I've still never seen War Games. I think there's a lot of people that that have never seen War Games. It's you know, it's not that. I'm gonna get uh, pilloried for saying this. It's not that great. It's a nuclear it- war classic. It's an AI classic, but it's just okay. Is it is that the one with like Angelina Jolie and her like first husband or am no, I that's that's that hackers. hackers that's Jolie okay. Lee Miller in in Hackers yeah uh, okay. no. also never seen that oh, that's such a good movie that one I actually really like <laughs> it's it's a bad movie but I enjoy it that and it's like motherboard canon you have to like hackers to to work here um, okay well this this explains why I I only uh, you know. I'm an external contributor rather than a, a staffer. Yeah, get the get the movies and 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 we'll bring you on. Yeah, uh, <laughs> War Games is 1983. Matthew Broderick, one of his first roles, um, thinks he's playing like hacks into the Pentagon. Thinks he's playing a nuclear war video game on an advanced system and is actually accidentally almost nuking the planet. Um, nice. Yeah, and it. it it's interesting. People should watch it just for the the cultural artifact. Um, yeah, and there's some there's a sort of a nice poetry to it. And I mean, we're we're going to get more into this sort of later on. But you know, it this is the case of like uh, someone who thinks they're just messing around on a computer, but is actually like changing the world. And these days, AI is a lot of people insisting they're changing the world while really just fooling around on a computer. Well, yeah, let's, uh, that's a great segue then. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work and why this is an area of fascination for you? Yeah. So, um, broadly speaking, I often say that like my focus is on AI and power, which sounds like it's, you know, really thoughtful and nuanced, but really it's because you have to go that broad to capture most, not all, but most uh, of the things that my little ADHD brain grabs onto. Um, But generally speaking, what I'm interested in is the implications that AI systems have for relations of power and structures of power, and also the role that these existing relations and structures um, have played in shaping our idea of what AI is, you know, the ways that it is made, the ways that it is um, uh, distributed in the ways that it's seen. Um, so it's kind of like a, a mutual process 
Like the formal way is like the mutual, the mutual shaping of technology and society. The more crass way is to say that it's basically a human centipede. Um, there's society and technology and power, and they're all just kind of shitting back and forth. That's uh, a beautiful image for the, the radio of the theater of the mind. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you about this uh, because I'd interviewed you about the Delphi AI, um, the kind of uh, – actually, I'll, I'll let you explain it. What What is the Delphi AI and, and why was it perhaps a bad idea? And what does it tell us more broadly about what people are using AI for right now? Totally. Um, so the Delphi AI was a project that a load of people at the Allen Institute who should collectively and individually know better um, came up with to try and make um, what we would think of as like a descriptive ethics system. So a system that is aware of the world as it is like this is good and this is bad and this is what good is and this is what bad is. And there are a lot of uses of a system like this, right? Because if you think about it, a lot of the more consequential, purely automated tasks that uh, AI systems might in- be involved in are going to involve some kind of moral decision and have to be based on moral values of some kind. Um, to use a slightly hyperbolic but kind of important example, um, if a self-driving car is choosing between whether you kill five people or one person who like looks pregnant, like the AI has to have a sense of like, what decision-making should one engage in here? Is it purely utilitarian? Kill the one person because five people is more people. Is it uh, something based on, on virtue ethics? Uh, kill the five people because people would judge me as an AI and as a like entity, if I like killed a baby, is it, uh, you know, like deontological? Is it based on like, well, the important thing is how I came to the conclusion, which way, uh, which one to kill rather than the actual outcome. Um, So there are a lot of potential uses of this system. And on the one hand, then it kind of makes sense that they build this. The big problem, one of the big problems um, was that any AI system uh, worth its salt these days, but particularly one that's going to make sort of vaguely human judgments, like this is good, this is bad, um, needs uh, source data. It needs something that it can learn from uh, that that represents what it's trying to learn, in this case, ethics. Um, And the system that uh, the Allen Institute built was trained on Reddit, specifically the Am I the Asshole subreddit and a few other sites. And the researchers looked at this and seemed to have gone like, oh, look, it's like a lot of people asking and answering like questions about ethics. We can use this to build a machine that asks and answers questions about ethics. But, you know, there are a thousand and one different problems with (laughs) treating Reddit as representative of this is what human morality looks like or should look like. Um, And that, but, but beyond that sort of baseline problem of like how representative is it, it raises, I think, a couple of really interesting broader questions. Um, and this is where that aspect of like the cultural shaping of AI, the AI shaping of culture, I think, comes into play, um, is for us to get to the point where you are training an AI to be a descriptive ethics system that decides who to mow down in a self-driving car. 
that's not the start of the decision-making process. That's in some ways the end of it. For you to be at that point, you have to have already decided that it is acceptable for a car to kill some number of people, that there is a certain ratio of saved to maimed people, which represents a, um, you know, uh, an acceptable risk rather than uh, a sign that you should maybe take this fucking thing off the road. Um, and there is this great researcher, uh, uh, Nasneen uh, Jafari at uh, Georgia Tech, I think, who has published several papers specifically pointing out that, like, you know, the, the problem of how many people do you kill, which is known as the trolley problem in philosophy and is, like, pretty prominent, is kind of a horrible problem. Because if you're in that situation, something much more structural, something much bigger has seriously gone wrong. Um, and maybe what you need to be talking about is not how many people you kill, but maybe whether you put up like barriers or, or maybe some like cameras, or maybe someone should look into this person who keeps tying people to train tracks. Um, and the other issue with it is like, what does it mean that we're coming up with descriptive systems? Like, what does it mean that we're trying to represent the way the world thinks about morality collectively and saying, this is the way that we should think about things. This is the way we should design technology to quote unquote, think about things. Um, and there's a load of interesting stuff in, in why that approach is the one they took of we're going to represent how people think about ethics instead of we're going to think about ethics. I have my own hypotheses, which may or may not be accurate, but I'll, I'll stop the ramble here. Like the, the important thing is, you know, not only the important questions about like bias and how representative the system is, but just the question of like, if you are debating the acceptable number of children to maim, then there has already been something that has gone drastically wrong in like your thought process somewhere. Like there is a more fundamental problem here. And, and that's kind of the thing that, that I try and capture with a lot of my work is like, not just the debate we're having, but like, what does it mean that this is the debate we're having? Like what we, have we already agreed on that might be super monstrous that we should really revisit? Well, in on an even deeper level too, like <laughs> Not, people shouldn't be maiming children, but if you've gotten to a point where you're talking about making a machine that automates the maiming of children and makes decisions, that's an even no, that's like another level of, of messed up that you've you've you know you've gotten to. Lots of choice, lots yeah. of bad choices were made along the way. Oh yeah. Um, okay, so I like this idea of like a machine for maiming children. I think it, they've unfortunately shut it down now. But if they hadn't, um, Uber's self-driving like car division might consider that as a motto. It was, I mean, it was going to happen eventually on a long enough timeline. Um, so <laughs> AI is something I, I think everybody's interested in right now. It's, it's kind of having this bizarre cultural moment, right? You know, Henry Kissinger is, is writing articles. You're taking a deep breath. Uh, Henry Kissinger is writing articles about the dangers of AI. Um, people are really trying to sell us on this right now. Why? Um, there's a lot of reasons. Um, one of which I, I will quickly say is, um, that, nah, screw this whole line of thought. Um, there are a lot of reasons that everyone's talking about AI and some you can point to as like, there are new technologies that have made it more useful, more applicable. Um, basically in, in every field of pattern recognition and machine learning, the last 20 years of, um, both like mathematical and software development and also hardware development have really drastically um, improved 
like our ability to do like statistical reasoning. Um, and, and that's ultimately what AI is most of the time. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, an example. Basically, there's this uh, classic statistical test, which I cannot think of the name of right now. And it's infuriating because I can even think of exactly what the example was that is used in the original paper. But um, it's not it's incredibly widely used. It's from like 1883. It was also uh, followed three years later by a much more accurate test, which wasn't used until a couple of years ago, because that's how long it took for the accuracy to be like computationally tractable. So it's just like this really interesting case of like, in some ways we're like the software and hardware is not only improving, it is like catching up with century old maths. We can literally do stuff that um, we could not practically do even though we could conceptualize it uh, like a century and a half ago. And so I don't want to downplay the fact that there is a lot of like genuine development in the software, the hardware, the theory that's behind this uh, growth. What's the- but at the same time... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so, but at the same time, uh, you know, this is half the answer. You don't just get all of that growth and development out of nowhere. You get it out of this being a place that a lot of people throw time and money and energy into. Um, and the reason for that is that AI is something that in practice, there are a lot of uh, very strong like financial and cultural incentives around. Like AI is often described by dickheads um, as the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and you know, that's true if, but it also tells you a lot that that's how they frame it, that they're like, oh, the, it's like the next industrial revolution, you know, that thing that gave everyone black lung disease. It's it's like that. It's going to make things more efficient. It's going to make things more automated, like that thing that led to the opening and development of poor houses. Um, it is it is a desire to concentrate power and uh, authority in the same ways that the previous industrial revolutions were. And this is not to say that there weren't good things that came from them, to be clear. Um, this is to say that that I am, I guess, in that respect, a, a modern Luddite, like my problem isn't with new technology. It is with when the technology is designed in such a way as to strip power from the actual people involved in it and concentrate it more heavily. And I think that's what we're, just, we're seeing uh, here with AI and automation, like whether AI and automation and all of these things like actually produce something, whether this time it is, as we've been promised, different is kind of secondary to the fact that we can point at those things and explain why that means that uh, we can shut down this factory now and lay off all these people and replace them with this contracting robot or uh, just so happen to like move things overseas where union protections are weaker. Um, admittedly, that example um, works better in the UK than the US, given that in the US union protections are about as robust as a chocolate teapot, but still. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of like the high scale, like picture it's, it's big right now because there have been like, like there has been like development of it, deployment of it, but there has been development and deployment because P 
people see something that they can get out of it. People with resources see something they can get out of it. Namely, the concentration of those resources, the automation away of the hard bits of work or the bits that heaven forfend involve interacting with the proles. Um, and the idea that Henry Kissinger is concerned about AI is kind of bafflingly hilarious, given that he's never been concerned about treason, napalming Vietnamese like women and children, you know, thousands of, of dead people, the Mai Lai massacre. Like, it doesn't it doesn't make me feel great to be on the same side of something as Henry Kissinger, is all I'm saying. Uh, even if I understand that, like, presumably uh, his investment is less to do with, like, actual actually being invested and more to do with uh, struggling for relevance as he increasingly enters senility and hoping against all odds that there will be some line in his CV uh, and obituary other than um, guy who most deserved to go to the Hague, but didn't make it. Good Lord. Um, oh, is that too mean to Henry Kissinger? No, no, it's Henry Kissinger. I think he's fine. I think, you know, not too, not too mean to Henry Kissinger. Yeah, like I'm not saying that he's not good at stuff. I'm just saying that his last two major investments were the American side in the Vietnam War and Theranos. And so at a certain point, we should probably stop listening to him. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that uh, everyone gets upset online when someone old and famous dies and it's not Henry Kissinger. Um, my, my personal favorite uh, reaction of, to him of all time was uh, the comedic mathematician Tom Lira, who I love de uh, dearly, thanks to my grandmother, um, who famously announced that he was retiring from making music after Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize because satire was dead. Tom Lira. And so there was no longer any point. Some of the great works of uh, anti-nuclear uh, songdom uh, came from him. Uh, Indeed. We'll all go together when we go, etc. Uh, Google it, everybody. It's great. Um, and he also recently just... Uh, released all of his music, uh, like relented the copyright on all of it. He's still alive. And so he, yeah. he, he, he put all of it into the public domain himself, uh, which I thought was well, cool. delightful. Absolutely delightful. Yes. Um, 93. Yeah. To get, cool. to get back on track though. Um, something that you just touched on that I thought is very interesting is that there's this idea that I think is core to the criticisms of AI, uh, there's this idea that needs to be debunked that technology itself is value neutral, right? That the, one of the reasons that you would have automation and you would let AI uh, do things is because the AI is going to make a determination that is stripped of, uh, you know, human value judgments, but that's extremely untrue. Correct. Yes. Um, making AI that's stripped of human value judgments would be like, Making a, a hamburger that's stripped of like humans, like, well, that's a bad analogy. Yeah. Making, making AI, uh, making any technology that's stripped of human elements is like making Soylent Green that's stripped of human elements. Like you've maybe obscured it by moving further up the chain, but it's ultimately people all the way down. Right. Can we, uh, can we talk about this a little bit? Can we give some specific examples of the way that, um, I think that facial recognition is a really great place to go because I think it's so well studied and we're, we're finally kind of starting to get a cultural backlash against it that yeah. uh, facial recognition kind of embeds the prejudices of the people who have made the software into it. Correct. 
100%. Um, myself and a collaborator, uh, Renato Barreto, uh, Renato Barreto Montenegro have actually been working on a paper over these last few months that's looking specifically at, for example, how even the nice facial recognition researchers, uh, conceptualize race. And it's been fascinating. And by fascinating, I mean horrifying. Uh, and by horrifying, I mean, I've run into multiple papers behind these very scientific, uh, you know, systems that are completely stripped of human biases that uh, divide their test data into three categories, uh, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and you can guess the third. Um, that third category, again, I'm quoting from an actual paper that was published in the last five years, um, that they were kind enough to include a little table of uh, all of the distinguishing factors, uh, factors and features between the three races. Um, the third category is characterized by uh, strong white teeth and jetty black skin. Uh, so this is the stuff behind the objective AI. And a bit of me is kind of like, I mean, obviously, all of me is horrified by this, but one of the bits of me that's horrified by this is just perplexed by the idea that you would have a good enough grasp of like language and poetry to write something with the meter of jetty black skin, but not know that racism is bad. Like there's a very selective process of learning that has gone on there. You're 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 teaching machines how to use calipers, right? It's nineteenth yeah. it's nineteenth century race science stuff. Exactly, and it's like you've made extremely ornate calipers. Like you have clearly spent a lot of energy just scrimshoring those calipers, and there's some gold inlay, and in all of the time doing all of that and learning how to, you didn't consider reading the single sentence: "Racism is bad." Like, it's just it's strange to me. Um, so yeah, facial recognition is is a pretty like commonly studied uh, spot, and and for very good reason because we've got this cultural backlash, and also frankly because I think it's something that is uh, pretty familiar to a lot of people and pretty easy to grasp. Right? It's essentially like automated surveillance cameras. It's it's something unfamiliar that we are becoming more familiar with that is based on things we are already familiar with. Um, and it's also really obvious when it's there, right? Like you need a camera, whereas there's a lot of other forms of AI, which might be just as consequential or more consequential, but uh, we might never see because they're not, you know, built into obvious and clear physical hardware. They're not things that fall into spaces like policing, which are already like highly studied and scrutinized for good reasons. Um, I'm thinking particularly of things like say medical AI. Uh, if your lab, if your like lab tech for your blood work has been replaced with an AI system, do you know? The answer is likely to be probably not. You didn't interact with the lab tech either. Um, and so there are a lot of spots where AI is being proposed or used or deployed that is um, more difficult to scrutinize because of the practicalities of just there's already a lot of infrastructure that we depend on that we don't see. That's just how the world works. Um, another, another, another recent example of this that I think about is the, uh, the companies that use AI to sort cover letters and CVs uh -huh. and then toss them out. And, you know, we have this labor shortage. People say they can't you know find people, but a lot of times they have an AI gatekeeper that's sorting through people's, uh, uh, 
resumes and tossing them out for inscrutable reasons, right? Yeah. And, you know, you can say that it was always inscrutable reasons. Like anytime someone says not a culture fit, what they really mean is I'm a bigot, but don't want to say it where a lawyer could see. Um, Like there have always been sort of biased or perplexing reasons for throwing people out of or into jobs. Um, But biased humans tend to find it more difficult to do it a million times a day and make the same error every time. And it becomes like increasingly difficult to actually audit and process and respond to that kind of, of bias, particularly when, um, you know, a lot of the times these, these software systems are developed by company A and then given to company B. And so even if the system explains why it is making the decisions it does, can the company that's using it actually get the software tweaked? Maybe, maybe not. You know, it's, it's, sort of like uh, outsourcing in a way, but an additional level of outsourcing. You lose control over what's actually going on. Yeah, human, the fifth person in the human centipede chain has no idea what the first person ate, right? Yeah, exactly. All they know is it does not taste good and that there's nothing they can do about it because they are stapled to person four. This analogy works really well, and I'm kind of sad that it works really well because wouldn't it be nice if we could come up with nice AI analogies? Like if AI was... I don't know, like an Easter egg full of winning lottery tickets and mean factoids about all the people you went to high school with who you worry are still cooler than you. Well, are there any good uses for AI? There are honestly quite a few. Um, The problem is that we need to stop treating it as a replacement for people or even for chunks of people and more treat it as a uh, augmentation to get all. Deus Ex. Um, It it was a formative computer game for me, and I will not apologize for that. Uh, So, well, and System Shock 2, honestly, superior to System Shock, the original. I'm old. It's fine. So the problem at the moment that we have is in part that people seem to treat AI as a uh, standalone decision maker. Um, We can replace one source of knowledge that is hard to gather or like brittle, like human judgment or like subjective reason with this AI system, which will be a lot more efficient, uh, a lot easier, a lot cheaper. And the reason that we have that approach is because those are the incentives that we have, right? We want to make things cheaper, more efficient, lean, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, lean might be good for stakes, but it's not really good for making knowledge or making decisions. Uh, If you have uh, the replacement of a person with an AI, you have amongst the other amongst other things like the replacement of how humans think about things with how machines think about things. And there's only like the person who benefits from um, the technician being fired and replaced by an AI that does a job half as well in twice the time is, is not the technician uh, and it's not the user either. And rather than see it through this lens as, you know, we have to replicate uh, human cognition, we have to make it efficient, we have to make it a million times faster and cooler and not depend on human beings in any way, shape or form. It seems much more productive to instead say, okay, AI like reasons in 
its own way and has strengths and advantages and disadvantages that human beings don't. And how can we treat this as a, a tool rather than as a, uh, for the, the person rather than as a replacement for the person? You need to have human discretion, involvement and accountability in there. Um, and you frankly need humans in there because there are things as we've discussed, like who do I maim? Um, that computers cannot do. And even if they could do, you know, will create a load of headaches when attempting. Um, Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah. You know, uh, I was just going to say that it's interesting as we're talking about this, it occurs to me that the most interesting use cases for AI that I've seen in the most, I think, productive uses of AI have seen have actually been by artists. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I can't remember if it was Matthew Guzdial or someone else who has uh, uh, created various AIs that will make video games. And they studied like Mega Man and Super Mario and trained it on all these old classic platformers. And now it will generate kind of a random platformer. Um, And the way he described the future for me is using an AI in game design would be an augmentation, just like you said. So you would have kind of this AI partner that's randomly generating stuff um, at, at a much faster rate than a human can. And then a human is shaping it and working with the AI to like help kind of direct the flow of whatever's being created. Um, I've also interviewed people that use like a GPT three to mm-hmm. write scripts and then they film them and there is human shaping of it afterwards. Um, and they were kind of explaining to me, like one, one of them has used it to write longer stuff and the way he uses it is when he gets stuck, he'll turn it on and have it generate five or six different prompts and then mm. kind of, pick one of those and like follow the story in that direction. And I thought that w- that's interesting. Um, and it is, it's, it's a much different use than what it like this, this automation and this replacing of humanity. It's this tool that's being used and helped to shape something. And I think it's interesting that the artists seem to be the ones that are figuring that out before, before mm-hmm. anyone else. I think it it is, but it also makes a lot of sense because one of the big components to, I think, the problem with AI is that um, there are an awful lot of people who believe that any job they do not do or do not understand or any job they do but don't like is, in fact, uh, boring scut work that could be replaced. And artists, of course, are fully aware of the fact that there is imagination and creativity and cues and prompts and responses to events in the world involved in pretty much everything. Like we are always reacting, we are always responding, we are always having flights of fancy. And I think this is true in in a lot of jobs. Like even if we're not looking at AI, even if we're looking at, uh, or, or at art, if we're looking at, I don't know, journalism or even accounting, right? Is like, 
there are you have like gut feelings that something is worth digging into that there's some there there or not or that something is satisfying and worth investing time in or not and these are ultimately processes that involve a degree of creativity and imagination and gambling they're not things that you can just give to a system that has been trained to replicate all previous instances of the system. And so to me, it makes a ton of sense that um, it will be the artists who get there first because they're the ones who are, I think, most cognizant of the fact that sense-making involves feeling and imagining and like hypothesizing. Um, And I think that the way that they're doing it, like Matt's work particularly, is like a really good prompt to everyone else as well. As you say, like treat it as a, a tool. Treat it, in fact, as a source of information in the same way that we that a lab tech might treat um, someone's CT scan as a source of information, you can treat like the AI analysis of that CT scan as a source of information. Um, you're not replacing the person as the person making judgments. You're not um, getting rid of the fact that that ultimately someone has to make the call and be accountable for for that call when it comes to like what do we investigate, what do we biopsy. Um, you are recognizing the fact that, that, yeah, like machines and people are good at different things. And if we're going to, until we come up with some kind of like general AI, we're going to have to live with the fact that you can't just replace people with machines. And even if you could, it would probably be a bad idea. And honestly, when we do invent the general AI, I assume that it'll spend five minutes on Reddit and then delete itself out of pure existential despair. So you you talk as if general AI is a given, like it is something that will happen. I mean, I personally don't think that it is in the way that people conceptualize it. Like, um, I honestly think that that uh, it would require such deep research in not just you know uh, AI itself, but neuroscience and like how the hell we design chips and we still haven't worked out if quantum phenomena are involved in the way cognition works. Like the best we've come up with is we're pretty sure that it's too wet and soft for like quantum effects to remain stable, but we don't have an adequate replacement for how the density is, is happening there. Like the idea that we're just going to create it, like I'm not saying it's never going to exist, but I am saying that I expect it to be like my great, great, great grandchildren's problem to to deal with, not mine. If, you know, we haven't screwed the planet up in so many other ways that we stop developing general AI, we are more like prioritizing the preservation of how to make fire. It's, it's interesting. This occurred to me as we're having this conversation that, so many of the AIs and the machine learning systems that we're talking about are dealing with the very, very beginnings of the problems that humans dealt with in their space. Does that make sense? Like, so somebody that wants to sort through, uh, you know, I'll give an example from my personal life. Uh, a long time ago, I had a very terrible job that I regret having. Um, I was a loss prevention officer for a large clothing multinational and one of the things you do is you sit behind a camera and you judge people when they walk in the store mm-hmm. and you make ju- you make value judgments about people based on their appearance. Um, and there's a lot, a whole a lot of horrifying and problematic things with that. And when I was there, they had already started to deploy early facial recognition systems in some of the stores in China. Um, they were already talking about 
you know, how they could automate this process, right, and take that burden off of the LP officer. Um, I shouldn't have even been doing that, right? And now we're training the AI, the AI we're, we're, we're forcing the AI to make the same mistakes we're either currently making or uh, have already made. And I think that the Delphi AI is a good one, um, a good example too, because I think you, you said, you told me something when I talked to you about this, it was like, if you'd walked into a first level philosophy class with this thing and said, you'd figured you'd made a box that, that could divine all human meaning, they'd laugh you, laugh you out of the room, right? Because they're having conversations so far advanced beyond what that thing is doing that it's functionally worthless to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm not going to go off and like geek about philosophy. I'll resist the urge for once. I'll just say like, Quine literally has this idea of the indeterminacy of translation, which would probably give any natural language processing company that is promising 100% accuracy a massive migraine. Um, but yeah, I think I think you've touched on like sort of two important things there. The first is, as you say, like there are um, these tasks are not even the whole job. They're not even most of the job. They're a tiny, tiny fragment of the job. And um, I think one of the, the issues that comes up a lot is that the way AI is designed, it comes from what I think of as like the managerial viewpoint or the viewpoint from the top and the outside of like, this is what is involved in this task. And so they see the things that they see and they try and automate those. And then they declare that the things they see are the entire job and they move on. Um, and I think this is very, very dangerous, not only because you know, as the loss prevention example shows, like it's such a tiny part of the work, but because a lot of the times making jobs work in practice doesn't look like what is formally written down. Like, you know, this, I know this, everyone who's ever had a job knows this. There's the shit that's formally written down. Then there's the shit that isn't formally written down that you found out because someone who'd been doing the job for a while told you. And then there's the shit that nobody told you because the only other guy who cared about it, like retired five years ago, that you had to kind of make up workarounds to, you know, on the way. And, uh, you know, it, it would be akin to um, having an AI read like the HR like guide and all of the manuals for all of the software you use and then declaring that it can do your job. Like that's all that stuff is the tiniest fraction of it. And I think there's a real risk here, which is that um, we end up designing systems that are like just conceptually useless and brittle because the work that they can do is the work that's easy to automate, not the work that's hard for humans because that latter stuff doesn't exist in a manual or in a formal like specification. It is the creative stuff. It is the stuff that, that we sort of have to cludge and approximate as we go. And so paradoxically, like the result of all of this AI foom um, might be that we end up spending a lot of time and energy and capital and resources and creativity getting rid of the works, the work that was least difficult for a person and leave behind all of the difficult problems and make them worse because now we've declared they don't exist and fired the guy who did them. Well, and, you've um, got a, and you have to fight your robot partner too. Right. Right. The, the whole like, time. I mean, I've, I've seen those Will Smith films and uh, it's, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like he makes the goatee work, but it doesn't look like he's having a fun time. Uh, the other, I guess I, I just bring up the other aspect as well, which is like, I think that, 
the, the loss prevention example is another good one because it gets at some of this, like, um, what does AI do? Like, not just what does a particular piece of software do, but like these cultural notions of AI, right? Like, what does it mean when we say that, like, oh, we're going to take this thing that's kind of shitty and we're going to replace it with this brand spanking new, perfectly objective thing, like, to do that can do no wrong? Um, it means perpetuating that thing. Like, take the example of, like, loss prevention, like facial recognition or policing facial recognition. How well the system works does not change the fact that those are not jobs and tasks that should exist to begin with. But what we've done is we have, like, complained that these shouldn't exist. And people have come back with, ah, I see. So you mean it needs to be more objective. I've got you. I've replaced the people who can be challenged with algorithmic systems that can't. And they've basically moved the goalposts on eliminating like a lot of these, these things. Like, I think this focus on like, how well does it automate the task ignores the fact that most jobs are, as David Graeber put it, bullshit jobs. Like they should not exist. We can probably just get rid of them, but we can't because getting rid of them would require reevaluating like how our existences and livelihoods like relate to the concept of work and the distribution of power and resources in this like country and society and world and far easier to just invest money in a unicorn startup and like keep the the gravy train for the people who write books with Henry Kissinger about AI um, going for another few years until it becomes someone else's problem. So I, I view your work as kind of that, like that is a big core of it. I think what, what you just said that you're using AI and our current obsession with AI to kind of explore these systems of power, right? Yeah. Um, have you found that because like it's easier to start a conversation about structural issues and structural power issues using the lens of AI? Has that been good? Has it been working? It's, been interesting um i found that that it is a tremendous like source but but it depends um so the way i think about it is that uh the disadvantage of ai is that the bullshit is everywhere but the advantage of ai is that the bullshit is everywhere if you want to talk to uh you know someone in a heavily white collar computerized environment and if you wanted to talk to them 10 years ago about unionization um, you would struggle because unions aren't for me. However, the people who are developing AI, this is my kind of like optimistic cynicism, right? Um, kind of overshot with their pitches because they promise that AI is for everyone. It is coming for everyone. And so when you see AI misbehaving and you see that there's not a damn thing you can do about it and it's happening in your backyard or in your office, then that suddenly is a, a vector for having these broader conversations that were just unintelligible without it. Like the downs, it, it's sad in a lot of ways that it has required this. And personally, I think the real fundamental change we need is uh, changes in how we think about risk and harm and each other so that we're not so many of us like not paying attention to the tiger until it's eating our face. Um, but I'll take the, the small victories where I can get them. And so if AI has made it easier to explain to some guy called Jeff who works for Comcast, uh, and like, you know, manages a call center, why 
you know, unions are good and uh, large corporate monopolies are bad, then I'll take that win. I'm just really hoping there's a guy called Jeff who works at Comcast and listens to this podcast and gets like a chill run off his back. It's anyway. Yeah, there's some guy in the the call department and they're about to automate his job and now yep. he's having all sorts of thoughts. Yeah. Um, like, uh, how do you feel? Have you seen the Blues Brothers? Yeah, of course. Oh, just say that. But I had to show it to someone like two days ago. I was trying to explain to them, like, it's got Carrie Fisher as a vengeful, jilted bride with a rocket launcher. Like, curl up and die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the scene where, uh, you know, Jake is like enlightened by James Brown and gets that very like 80s CGI blue glow. I just imagine like someone working at Comcast getting that listening to this podcast. Like I see the light. Um, all right. So we've talked, we've talked, we focused a lot on race. Yeah. Uh, here. I also want to hit on some of the other stuff that your work is focused on. Um, how these like, especially with facial recognition and, I guess actually let me pull up. Let me let me back up. Why do you think that so much of the focus on the conversation around AI recently has been about facial recognition? Is it just because that's the thing that's in the news? I think it's it's the thing that's in the news. It's a thing that touches on a lot of existing sort of worries. Maybe my internal cynic would say, because I've been spending too much time with the cultural studies literature, um, it's the thing that everyone can agree on. Like, if you're on the far right, you hate all governments. Or rather, if you're on the far right, you like hate the state, at least in theory. If you are on the left, you at least hate this one. Um, I say, acknowledging that technically that's a statement that could probably get me deported. It's fine. Um, if, I, if I'm going to get thrown out of an entire country for being too leftist, then that honestly sounds like a great CV line. Um, like, I think the, the facial recognition is in this weird spot where people like the Cato Institute and also people like the DSA are against it for completely different reasons. Um, but there is this moment of sort of like confusing camaraderie and like, you know, even, even like some like small... L libertarians in the Republican Party are, are against it. Whereas if you start talking about um, automating hiring processes or automating away people's jobs, unless you mention the word, magic word China and trigger everyone's like internal sort of rabid xenophobia, which is the other thing that both parties seem to be able to agree on when it comes to AI policy, um, you end up with a completely different, much more fractured response, right? Um so partly it's that it's in the news, partly it's that it's a weird moment of kind of agreement and overlap. Uh, and it came at a very, I think, a very particular historical moment as well, right, which is uh, that it came uh, during the exhaustion of the sort of like Bush and Obama and Trump and now Biden era, like perpetual war on terror. Um, everyone hates it for different reasons. Um, at the same time, you know, to continue my reputation for pessimism, it's also created other forms of weird ally in support of that, right? Like conventional corporatist Democrats tend to like the technology because 
taking Thing and making Thing high tech and Web 3.0 and AI and ooh makes it sound like we're doing stuff that like you know is is remunerative but doesn't change anything and that's our whole thing and um, you know mainstream Republicans like it because well they hate brown people that's that's mostly the reason um, so. It's created like weird allies on both sides, but as a result of that, I think it's getting talked about in a way that is harder to do with other issues, definitely. I also think that, I don't know, maybe this is another form of cynicism. It's also getting talked about because it's easy to talk about. The biases we talk about in facial recognition are easy biases to spot. They fit conventional people's ideas of what does racism or transphobia or ableism look like? Is this like visual spectrum of like skin color or is there a wheelchair or like, you know, an Adam's apple? And it gets much harder to talk about that when it is indirect and far more pernicious and structural. Well, can we... Can you highlight for us some ways that AI is then uh, codifying these systems of power that is not based on just facial recognition? Totally. So um, let's take, for example, because it's an example I've, I've used a few times, like hiring algorithms. Um, there are a lot of ways in which you can imagine a hiring algorithm that you know, does a sort of automated interviews being conventionally racist, by which I mean, like, exactly the things that people think of, right? Maybe it's not good at detecting expressions on, like, darker skinned faces, or, you know, there are assumptions it has built in about emotive ranges that don't make sense. But there's also a lot more, like, wrinkly and pernicious harms, which get much more complicated to talk about. So suppose that a system is literally just reading and scanning CVs, right? And, like, looking for keywords. So, who knows what magic keywords to know? It's probably people who are already invested in like the network of relations that lets you speak insider for like the particular field. Um, which jobs tend to get like, you know, automation in their responsiveness rather than like in-person interviews and like really holistic quote unquote, like processes. It's probably the like entry level and sort of like more like, working class classed ones. Um, what names can the system recognize? Uh, which universities are universities of like high quality? Is it like Harvard and Yale? Is it Wellesley too? Is it any of the like historically black colleges and universities? Um, how does it handle qualifications from places that aren't the US? Can it handle qualifications from places that aren't the US? Um, how does it handle someone who doesn't submit some of the data because they're trans and their university won't update their old diploma to like remove their dead name from it? You know, is that treated as like fine or is that a sign that there is an inconsistency in the submitted materials that like maybe it's fraudulent, maybe it's it's incorrect. Maybe they don't really have that degree. We see all of these much more difficult uh, examples of, of ways in which um, bias and just bias alone can, can show up. Like let's, let's not even get into the fact that it is HR jobs that we are automating away, that it is the domain that is historically like highly feminized and seen as like not real work by tech bros. Like there's no coincidence that it's those jobs that are going. Um, but even if we just look at this question of bias, suddenly you have all of these 
much more wicked and finicky problems that require you to make judgments that might make you, the developer, uncomfortable, that require you to take a stand about which universities matter and what it means if you decide that none of the black colleges do, about what to prioritize in data cleanliness versus active transphobia. And these are all really, really uncomfortable because they require you to actually reflect and think about yourself. And this is not something that a lot of people would like to do, particularly people who work in tech where, you know, people and feelings are are not exactly centered. Like you should be as rational and objective as possible. You probably don't have the, the... space to even experience and process discomfort and involvement, uh, let alone any desire to. Um, And so, yeah, it's easy to look at facial recognition and say, like, this is biased. It's it's easy even to look at, like, the distribution of facial recognition cameras and say it's biased, right? Because we have that, that script to fall back on about redlining, right? And we know what redlining is and we know that it is bad and we agree on that. But it gets harder when we talk about things that are like indirect proxies or that make us actually take a stand when they suddenly touch on stuff that we don't all agree on or aren't all familiar with, like good old boys networks and the historical like segregation of and resourcing of different universities and different forms of education. And yeah, that makes people uncomfortable. Do you th- and yeah. Do you think then that the that the generalized backlash that we're seeing against AI can help us have those conversations? I would like to think so. Um, I actually just finished a paper about this. Like it's it's looking specifically at algorithmic audits, and I'll, I think I think I may have told you about it, but I'll tell you about uh, about it more after the the mic has gone. But one of the the things it's about is about discomfort. It's about the fact that. The work of developing algorithmic systems or experiencing them is ultimately about feelings as much as it is reason, because it's work and work is about feelings as well as reason. And there is, and the sort of point we try and build towards to be hopeful is drawing on this amazing philosopher I love called uh, Alexis Shotwell, um, who is alive and young. And I'm not making people like read Wittgenstein when I say that you should like go pick up her book knowing otherwise, because it's amazing. And she basically makes this this argument of a lot of what we think of as bigotry, like where it lives is in not the like unconscious, but like is in the implicit. It's in the tacit. It's in the reflexes. It's in the things that we do without thinking about it. And the from that kind of view, like if you want to combat it, you really have to make it explicit so that it can be confronted. And so, yeah, like this is a long-winded way of getting at, I think that the bringing this up more, that making it explicit can serve not only as a reminder of how fucked up the world is that we're still having this fight, but also a, a opportunity to do better because suddenly it's the thing that we can talk about. Um, people's discomfort moves from being something that is bad and should be avoided because you don't want to make anyone sad to being like something to be worked through, something to be confronted. And if we can go there, then I think that we will be in a better world. My only worry is that it's so easy for people to say, well, this is an AI problem. And that's why I always, like with my work, try and bring it back to this border structures. Like we didn't 
just decide to make racist AI out of nowhere. We decided to have a racist policing system with a buttload of money and a like captive industry whose whole job is going up to police officers and offering to shine their shoes for a million dollars. And that's how we get like racist AI. Like it's not because AI is just ridiculous, although a lot of the times it is, it's because like we have entire industries that treat racism as a market um, or as the cost of doing business in another market. And so that that's my only like worry is like, I don't want people to focus on AI too much as if, if we just like EMP the Bay area, like discrimination will be gone. We'll all be holding hands. Like, no, this was a fucked up country and we were a fucked up sort of culture uh, broadly construed long before like Turing plugged the first vacuum tube into his, his doohickeys. Uh, I think that's a great place to go out on. I'm going to, I'm going to hit the big purple button that plays the outro music. Gives me a bizarre sense of joy whenever I hit it. I don't know why. Um, I mean, it means you get to like go eat dinner. (laughs) No, I've still got a bunch of work to do. Um, Oz Keys, where can people find your work? Uh, they can probably find me on Twitter under my name or on the website that's linked from there. Perfect. I'm not going to spell out my website for everyone because nobody deserves to hear someone painstakingly go through etc. Thank you so much for coming on Cyber and walking us through this. Thank you for having me. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.